0: So, uh, I'm really pleased to introduce, uh, again, another uh, friend and colleague, uh, uh, Dr. Sandy Burstein. He's a geriatrician and family medicine specialist who you may not know because he spends his time uh, in Nashua, at Dartmouth-Hitchcock-Nashua, but is the medical director there. Uh, he's also an adjunct assistant professor in community and family medicine uh, at the medical school. Uh, he's uh, served as a member or chair of, of a number of committees ded- dedicated to improving health care in our region as well as nationally. Uh, he's a member of the American Fan- Academy of Family Physicians, New Hampshire Medical Society, American Geriatric Society, uh, served as chair of the Department of Family Practice uh, at uh, the Memorial Hospital in the same department at Dartmouth-Hitchcock and Nashua. He's been a medical director in many different roles, uh, including not only in Nashville, but also hospice programs, nursing home programs, family practices, uh, won an award for outstanding contributions to patient care, and has been invited to provide presentations on many occasions on the, this topic, on pulse And he has been singularly uh, really important uh, for uh, Dartmouth and for the region in terms of uh, uh, getting interested in this area and uh, uh, spending some time as I think he'll describe uh, getting uh, becoming an expert uh, going out to Wisconsin to kind of to Mecca to learn about this and uh, and is now um, uh, being really the the lead purveyor um, helping to lead an initiative in advanced care plannings and advanced direction directives in the region and in our system um, He's uh, also been uh, very helpful to us in terms of a falls uh, reduction program uh, at Dartmouth and was instrumental in getting systematic screening into the medical record, uh, uh, which is really a, a putting anything into an electronic medical record is like an act of God. So uh, he was able to do that and, uh, and, and now we're screening all people over age 65 uh, in emergency room settings and in primary care and it's really been a tremendous addition. Uh, he also is active in a number of other areas. Uh, we understand the uh, Amherst uh, New Hampshire Soccer Club Board of Directors. He's also a, uh, on the Crotchet Mountain Ski Patrol. I didn't Not know more. that. that up. He gave that up, I was like, gosh, uh, okay. So he's given that up. He's, he's uh, keeping on the ground, hopefully cross-country skiing and yeah. snowshoeing instead. Uh, good, great. So I'm really delighted to introduce uh, Dr. Sandy Burstein.
1: Thank you very much, uh, I'm very pleased to have been invited to talk here today, and I I, I have a couple of hard acts to follow. Uh, Those were great presentations earlier, and I hope that uh, you get, I I suspect that many of you know a lot about this topic, but I hope that you glean something from this that's new. So, um, when I was asked to talk about this, uh, and it's in the brochure, I was asked to explain the role of advanced directives, including the appropriate use of the directives over the course of a patient's life after a diagnosis of dementia, or hopefully before a diagnosis of dementia. So, um, but I, as an outline for my talk and for the specific things that I hope that you'll get out of this, um, I want to differentiate between advanced care planning and advanced directives. I Also want you to appreciate that the Pulse paradigm is coming to New Hampshire. And I apologize to those of you who are from New Ham- uh, from Vermont or Uh, Massachusetts, I will mention about that too. Um, I I want you to hear about the evidence from La Crosse, Wisconsin uh, on the success of advanced care planning with the program that you may have heard of as Respecting Choices. Um, I want you to understand the design elements for successful improvement of advanced care planning. So It's not enough to just know about it or to be trained to have a discussion, but if you really want to improve it, there's some design elements that have been proven and I also want you to understand the special importance of advanced care planning for patients with dementia and their families. So, um, so that I understand how much of a mistake I made in, in talking about post only, how many are here from uh, New Hampshire? Okay, most of you are. From Vermont? Oh, there's a lot from Vermont. Massachusetts? Okay, and of course New York. Uh, Bob was here earlier, so, so um, I'm gonna those of you from New Hampshire on your. Uh, so, Bob, this is a little bit New Hampshire history. Uh, how many from New Hampshire know what happened on May 3rd, 2003? The old man in the mountain. The old man in the mountain. Do you, have you heard of the old man in the mountain, Bob? Have you heard of it? Yes. Okay, so the old man in the mountain. His face
0: fell.
1: His face fell. The old man in the mountain on our license plate, an icon of New Hampshire. His face fell. So now here's another thing. Everybody knows what our state motto is: "Live free or die." Who said "live free or die"? And when did he say it? John Stark. Who is John Stark? Maverick general from the Revolutionary War, a hero from New Hampshire, said "live free or die" in a letter. He was being honored for his role in the Revolutionary War and uh, he couldn't make it, so he wrote a letter and he sent it to somebody, they brought it by horseback, uh, and delivered this letter, and he said, live free or die. Now, what was the rest of the quote? (laughs) He said, live free or die, death is not the worst of evils. So I'll ask you, what is the worst of evils? We could talk about that for an hour, or more. Someone said Alzheimer's. To answer that question, I have a quote here from Ira Byock, who wrote The Best Care Possible, published in 2012. And he writes, there are worse things than having someone you love die. More basic, there is having the person you love die badly, suffering as he or she dies worse still, is realizing later on that much of his or her suffering was unnecessary. So, I'd like to start off by differentiating between advanced care planning and advanced directives. So I'm gonna start with a patient story, in case. I'll read you this case. A 71-year-old man with severe chronic obstructive pulmonary disease and dementia is admitted to a nursing home after a hospital stay for pneumonia. He develops increasing shortness of breath and decreasing responsiveness over the next 24 hours. The nursing staff calls the emergency medical service who finds the patient unresponsive with uh, an oxygen saturation of 85% on room air, which is low. The patient had discussed his desire to forego aggressive life-sustaining measures with his family and nursing personnel and completed a medical power of attorney. Although a do not resuscitate order was written, the emergency team was not informed and there were no orders for respiratory failure. The emergency team inserts a nasal-pharyngeal airway Administer, administers supplemental oxygen and transports the patient to the emergency department of a local hospital. The patient remains unresponsive and his chest x-ray shows large lung volumes with consolidation, consistent, <coughs> consistent with pneumonia. Excuse me. <coughs> the emergency, <coughs> the emergency department physician writes, full code for now, status unclear. The patient is intubated, sedated, and transferred to the intensive care unit. Arterial blood gases show marked respiratory acidosis. That's a case that was written up in Archives of Internal Medicine. So, what went wrong? Yes? Should have had a portable DNR. Should have had a portable DNR. Something anyone else suggest? Communication. Communication. A lot went wrong, communication is a good summary of everything that went wrong. So there was a DNR order, but it was not communicated within the facility. There was was no clarification about what he meant by no aggressive treatment. There was a lack of eliciting patient wishes regarding all the relevant treatment decisions. Airway management, hospitalization, comfort measures, Did the patient receive unwanted care? We don't know, probably. There was a system-wide failure to respect patient patient wishes. Thanks. Failure to plan ahead for relevant treatment decisions and no system for transferring that plan of care between facilities. So, most people die. From sudden death from an acute medical event, sudden death from a traumatic event, chronic progressive illness. Great. Great. Chronic progressive illness, yes. So most people would rather die at home surrounded by loved ones, but in fact most of deaths occur in medical institutions. And most people want to talk about about this with their doctor, about end of life care, but, but very few do. And most people feel it's extremely important that family not be burdened with tough decisions, but have not communicated those wishes. And in fact, most people are unable to speak on their own behalf at the end of life. And most people have not, um, only 25% of people have put those, uh, those wishes in writing. And in New Hampshire and nationally um, have an advanced directive on about 30% of the time. So, um, I'll pause a moment just to tell the tell story. Uh, I'm a family doctor, and early in my career, uh, before I spent more time in geriatrics, I took care of, of people of all ages, and I was taking care of a, a young mother, a 16-year-old, uh, who had a child. She was in my practice, and at the time, I, would, I created family trees and tried to find out about people where they lived and what was important to them. So I asked her, you know, where do you live? And she said, oh, I live with an older couple. I said, you live with an older couple? 30 years old. (laughs) So actually, she didn't have it wrong, because at age 30, that's when we peak. You know, our body functions are at the height, and there's a steady decline downhill from there. Our FEV1, our ability to accommodate to light, to temperature, to blood pressure, is on a steady decline. And we call old sort of people that are just about 15 years older than you. But in fact, everybody wants, nobody wants to be old, but everyone wants to retire. (laughs) Uh, We don't call it the American Association of Old People. We call it the American Association of Retired People. And so it's really retirement that distinguishes, distinguishes when, you know, that sort of cut off when people are retired. You know, we don't say old. But there's a steady decline in our functions, and more things are likely to happen. And along the way, we get sick, and we decline and we get better, but we, we don't always get back to our baseline. And then at some point, we die. In America, people think it's optional, but everybody dies. And everybody wants to go to heaven, but nobody wants to die, you know, we know that. So, but for people with, um, with frailty, with dementia, it's more of a sort of a lingering dwindles than it is the sort of steady decline. And then if you were to ask people without informed decision, just ask people what they would want, in your current state of health, would you want tube feeding, mechanical ventilation, CPR, dialysis, Um, many people would want those things. But if you ask them, if you were to have had a stroke or severe dementia or terminal illness, permanent coma, would you want these things? And some people, if you ask them, if you were in a permanent coma, would you want dialysis? Some people would want that. Just without informed decision, without uh, understanding, appreciation, the important elements of that. If you were to ask people, if you had to choose between kept alive as long as possible, or living a shorter time to avoid pain, suffering, and just being kept, what would you pick? Most people consistently would want to live shorter, avoid machines, but some people would want to be kept alive. Again, that's without informed decision making, just sort of asking the random question. So what are the desired outcomes of advanced care planning? To know and to honor a patient's informed plans by creating an effective plan, including selecting a well-prepared healthcare agent or proxy when possible. Someone who is willing and able to speak on your behalf, knows how you feel, and able to step up and speak on your behalf, even if they don't agree with you creating specific instructions that reflect informed decisions that are geared to that person's state of health. Having those plans available to the treating physician or the team, and incorporating those plans into medical decisions when needed. So the definition of advanced care planning is a process of planning for future medical decisions And for that process to be effective, it needs to be similar to standards of the process of informed consent. The person needs to understand possible future situations and choices and appreciate them. They need to reflect on their goals and values, including religious and cultural beliefs, and discuss these choices and plans with those who might need to carry out the plan. So an understanding, reflection, discussion. An advanced directive is that plan. It's a written document made by a capable person or their surrogate for future medical care regarding treatments or goals of care for a possible or probable event. Now, there are advanced directives, and I'll put them into categories of those that guide care or those that represent portable orders. And those that guide care would be the living will or the durable power of attorney for health care. That's where. Uh, you assign someone to make a decision for you when you can't speak for yourself based and you hopefully have discussed with them your goals and values and the kind of things that you might anticipate and they would make those decisions for you and they would guide a physician or team on your behalf when you lose that capacity or those that represent actual orders that can be acted on by a physician by a team based on a physician's order. Portable DNR, the pink portable DNR, that's legislated in New Hampshire, um, and is recognized if a physician in New Hampshire writes signs of portable do not resuscitate, it's recognized all over New Hampshire. And then the pulsed, what we call in New Hampshire the pulsed, the Provider Order for Life Sustaining Treatment which gives more specific instructions around a number of things about hospitalization, or IVs, or antibiotics, and which, although it's not legislated in New Hampshire, it's consistent with Ham- the New Hampshire law, there is a POST, um form that has been uh, developed for New Hampshire, and which is recognized in communities uh, and, can, and recognized by our emergency medical system here in New Hampshire to be acted on. So there's those that guide care and those that represent orders. And then the relationship of advanced directives to, of advanced care planning, they're only as good as a process of planning. If the person planning doesn't understand, reflect, or discuss their options adequately, the plan has a higher probability of failure. So the the success of advanced directive is really tied to the quality of the process, just as any decision is tied to the quality of the informed decision. So advanced care planning is a specialized kind of shared decision making. So according to the uh, Institute of Medicine, a good death is one that is free from avoidable distress and suffering for patients, families, and caregivers. In general accord, with the patient's and family's wishes and reasonably consistent with clinical, cultural and ethical standards. So advanced care planning is that process of understanding, reflection, discussion based on the information and their goals and values. And it helps support a, a means to a better end. So now I'd like to help you appreciate that the PULSE paradigm is coming to New Hampshire. And I'd like to talk about sort of the what uh, what in in La Crosse Wisconsin they call three phases of uh, advanced care planning. Uh, the first they, they divide it into first steps, next steps, and last steps. So first steps would be early uh, for anyone who is of uh, has decision making capacity who is uh, and that would be anyone over 18. Actually, my birthday was uh, earlier this month. I have four children between the ages of twenty and thirty, and for my birthday this year they, they gave me their advanced directives based on our on discussions that we had. So I did that in part because I wanted to make the point that advanced directives are for anyone over the age of 18. So uh, creating a power of attorney for health care made thinking about what would you what would you do if you were faced with a, uh, you had loss of capacity to make decisions, uh, you had an acute neurological event, you couldn't speak for yourself, doctors thought it was unlikely that you would, would recover from that, you know, would you want uh, life-sustaining treatment? So, um, those are f- the first steps is basic, durable power of attorney for healthcare. Next steps would be for people who have chronic illness, not necessarily at the end of life, but severe illness such as heart failure, COPD and stage renal disease, um, where there are frequent complications, frequent hospitalizations, and where uh, advanced care planning can help explore their understanding of and fill in the gaps regarding their knowledge on the complications, and come up with plans to, uh, to deal with expected uh, events. And then finally, last steps, or the pulsed paradigm. Uh, would be establishing a specific plan of care that could be expressed in medical orders using the pulsed paradigm. And that would be for people who you wouldn't be surprised will die in the next year. So this is a a map showing the penetration of the pulsed paradigm in states around the United States. It started in Oregon, and there's a mature program there. There's also a mature program in West Virginia. And there are endorsed and evolving programs in other states. And New Hampshire is, has a developing program. And I'd like to you know, darken that color there. Uh, actually, this year there is a uh, Senate bill uh, that looks like it's uh, going to pass that establishes a pulsed registry. We don't even have an established pulse uh, law. But they're, they're, it looks like they're going to establish a Pulsed registry. And over the next couple of years, we hope to... Uh, expand the education around Pulse in New Hampshire and uh, not just the education but quality improvement programs around that. So um, the, the forms are typically uh, easily identifiable. Uh, what happened to my pulse form? Here it is. So the New Hampshire, we have it on cardstock, bright yellow. You can see in other states they have different colors. Um, and as you heard, We have the COLST in Vermont, that's the Clinician Order for Life Sustaining Treatment. In New York and Massachusetts, it's the MOLST, the Medical Order for Life Sustaining Treatment. In West Virginia, it's the POST, the Physician Order for Scope of Treatment. Louisiana, it's called the LA POST, which is Louisiana's provider order for scope of treatment. So, the paradigm is the same. It's specific orders based on advanced care planning uh, that become actionable orders. And the purpose of it is to provide a mechanism to communicate patients' preferences for end of life treatment across care settings on the transfer of care to avoid that situation that our patient we heard about earlier. To improve the implementation of advanced care planning by providing more specific instructions or orders for seriously ill patients. So this is what the New Hampshire pulsed form looks like. And actually, there's a newer version coming out where uh, in the first section, you where it says cardiopulmonary resuscitation, it's, do, it, there's some minor words, think, do not attempt resuscitation. So the first decision is regarding uh, the decision to have CPR. And the next one is regarding medical intervention. Someone has a pulse, and they're breathing, but they're declining. So um, they may choose not to have cardiopulmonary resuscitation, but they may choose to go to the hospital, to go to the intensive care unit, maybe to be on a ventilator, or not, depending on their circumstances, their understanding, appreciation, reflection, and discussion, does it support their goals and values? Or comfort-focused care. Or medically-administered fluids and nutrition, IVs, these long-term, for defined periods, feeding tubes. Now, there, are, there may be subtler versions of it, more specific, and so there's space on the form, other instructions, I believe the, uh, the, the modification made this year will add additional space on the form. Uh, they may decide to go to the intensive care unit and give a trial of intubation for 96 hours, or two weeks, uh, so they could specify that here. And then it's signed by a physician or nurse practitioner, and uh, it's documented in a record the, the nature of the conversation and uh, made available. Now, um, I'll tell you that uh, when I, a couple of years ago, I had attended a conference here, and I was talking to Suzanne B.A. at the time, who was the head of the, uh, the Center for Health and Aging, and also talked with Ira Biak about... Um, this, I was trying to improve my own ability to have these conversations, and they both uh, advised me to check out La Crosse, Wisconsin, what was going on Respecting Choices uh, in La Crosse, Wisconsin. And I went out there, and I, I was trained in the POLST conversation, and I was trained as an instructor, and I came back very excited, and I started filling out these forms, putting them in the chart in the nursing home, and uh, I come back a week later, and they were gone. They were sort of stuck in a the cabinet, they said, oh, this doesn't fit with with our, you know, rec- record system. And I realized that it's not gonna go anywhere. I can't do this myself. So it really involved changing policies and creating a community collaborative where awareness and agreement to honor these forms was so important. So um, what's the difference between the Pulsed and the Durable Power of Attorney for Healthcare? So of course, Every adult needs a durable power of attorney for healthcare, but really the pulse is only for those who you wouldn't be surprised will die in the next year. And then the the durable power of attorney for healthcare is about decisions for a myriad of future treatments. But those are the pulses for specific uh, orders. CPR, hospitalizations, IVs, antibiotics. There's a clear statement of preferences, but these are Decisions. The pulse is decisions and orders. The power of attorney for healthcare needs to be retrieved. I'm sure you've experienced this: that um, people have a durable power of attorney for healthcare. It's Sunday afternoon, and where is it? And it's during their uh, in their attorney's, you know, office, which is locked. They can't bring it. The pulse really needs to stay with the patient. It needs to travel with them. Uh, there's an interest in having a registry, electronic registry. We're worried about that because if it's not the latest one, you don't know if it's, uh, it could have been changed. So right now, this needs to be with people. It Needs to be in their record, it needs to travel with them. And um, so finally in the nursing home where I work, uh, they finally changed their policy and they started using the Pulse form. And I remember we did our first Pulse and there it was in the patient's chart. And that patient went to the hospital And I was so excited, I said, wow, did it go? And they go, oh, we forgot to send the form. (laughs) (laughs) And why? Because it wasn't on the checklist. So we changed the checklist. Now the form goes out. And does it come back? Well, most of the time it does. And if it doesn't, we try to find out what happened. So it's meant to transfer that information. And you need a system. You need a workflow. It's not just knowing how to do this. Power of attorney for healthcare does require physician's order, but the post isn't physician's order. And of course, the durable power of attorney for healthcare can only be prepared with an adult who has that capacity to make the decision. And the post can be prepared uh, with an adult with that capacity or with their proxy, their healthcare proxy. Again, this is for people who answer the question. You know would I be surprised if this patient died the next year? And that's not how I introduce this to people. I don't say, like, I wouldn't be surprised you're going to die in the next year, so I'd like to do this. So that's not how we introduce but that's what I, we think of that. Um, and often, many people in long-term care might fit that description. We don't expect them to, but we wouldn't be surprised, so it helps to decide who are you going to do this on. Um, I've had emergency room doctors who have seen me present about this, and they want everybody to have this, because they want to have this all laid out for them, easy for them. And I... It, you could do that, but you'd be changing your mind a lot because people's situations change. But for people who you wouldn't be surprised, um, this is an appropriate conversation. And uh, National Quality Forum said that compared with other advanced directive programs, POST more accurately conveys end-of-life preferences and yields higher adherence by medical professionals. So now I want to tell you a little bit about La Crosse, Wisconsin uh, and the evidence from there. And uh, it's been uh, a few weeks ago on public radio, there was a little spot where they interviewed the folks in La Crosse, Wisconsin. They sort of randomly went around the block and uh, knocked on people's doors and asked them if they had advanced directives. And it turns out in this little town, 60,000 people, two competing hospitals, half a dozen nursing homes, EMS. Uh, they have 96% of the people in that community have advanced directives. and The other 4% are under peer pressure from their neighbors to have this. <laughs> you can go to public, uh, na- uh, National Public Radio, New Hampshire Public Radio, and uh, find, and listen to, the, they have a seven minute, and I think they have a longer version of that conversation. And then yesterday morning on CBS Sunday Morning, uh, the folks from La Crosse were uh, featured on the, the program, there was a uh, five-minute spot where they interviewed people in the community and and some of the leaders from the uh, from the program that started this and they uh, they started they, back in 1991 the community had about 15 percent of their uh, the people in the community had advanced directives and we don't even know what the quality of those advanced directives I'm sure your experience uh, may is no different than mine people have advanced directives and they've named uh, a, a nephew in Connecticut who didn't know he was named as the proxy. He doesn't know what they want. He wants nothing to do with it. Or maybe we have an advanced directive that was executed 10 years ago, and the person who's named as the proxy is dead. You know, so, so just because they have it, we don't even know if they're legal or what, the quality of those conversations. So um, 15% was what they had, and within uh, five years, they had bumped it up to over 80%. And at this point in time, 96% of people have advanced directives based on good conversations. So uh, their design elements um, over a couple of decades of improvement was to start off with, well, you need a document. So they looked at their own document. um, And they want to have a system, a workflow, a system for creating it, identifying people to have conversations, Uh, storing it and retrieving it, and then making it teams, maybe having a referral team. So they developed workflows. Second, they decided that they would train people on how to have conversations. Now, people involved in uh, geriatrics and palliative care often are well-skilled and have experience in motivational interviewing, shared decision-making, conversations, and. The elements of it are all there, but they decided they would come up with a scripted education so that we could trust that the people on our team or in our communities are having the same kind of conversation, the same conversation, in fact, so that uh, they have developed first steps, next steps, and last steps facilitated training uh, on how to have these conversations. And then, of course, community engagement. They want to have materials that engage people, uh, strategies to engage the community, to address diversity. And uh, I know that there are, there's a lot of interest in the upper valley here. There's an interfaith um, conversation project that's going on. I know there's an elder, uh, elder advisory group that meets at Alice Peck Day on a monthly basis. And they are very interested in moving this along. And they may be out in front of the healthcare system, but the healthcare system needs to be ready to meet that demand. Um, and so uh, we are, uh, I've been asked to lead, uh, lead with others a, a project to improve advanced care planning at Dartmouth Hitchcock. And then finally, and one that's often overlooked, is the uh, quality improvement process. Um, and I'll, I'll, I can, I have my own experience tells me that this is a part that uh, we're really missing. And the process is, they've sort of divided into five promises. Initiating the conversation, assisting people uh, in completing forms, clarifying their goals and values and decisions, assuring that the plans are available and that their plans are followed. And um, so, in the process of reaching out to Respect and Choices in Lacrosse, I've gone out there a few times and uh, finally decided that I would help train people in New Hampshire on the pulse paradigm. So uh, last, last calendar year we trained 14 instructors around the state of New Hampshire to teach the pulse Conversation. And between us, we've trained about 250 people uh, to be facilitators of the Pulse Conversation. We did that in, uh, in Lancaster, in Concord, Manchester, Nashua, Keene, Dover, Exeter, uh, and in communities where uh, a, a team of people, uh, either in a nursing home or between a doctor's office and, and a visiting nurse association, uh, if they agreed to putting some discipline around quality improvement, meaning picking, defining a goal, picking a measure, and uh, developing workflows and agreeing to meet, then they had some penetration. They showed that they could develop pulse and that the pulse would be developed and stored and retrieved and transferred and come back and reflect people's wishes. We didn't do any, none of them did any formal studies on the quality assurance around those conversations, but that could be done. But in the large majority of the communities where the training was done, nothing has happened. People came back happy that they learned the skill, but they didn't actually have the conversations. So my experience is that it's more than education. You need to commit to quality improvement. And I think that's something that they did in La Crosse that uh, is an example for the rest of us. So they published a, couple, a number of studies, but I'm gonna share one of them, regarding their La Crosse Advanced Director Studies, the prevalence availability and consistence of advanced directives over a 10 year period after implementing this program, the four design elements. And uh, they looked at everybody who died in La Crosse County, two different hospital systems and nursing homes, uh, the first time they had, they, were, they had money for 12 months, the next time they ran out of money at the end of uh, eight or nine months. But um, of 459 people that died in La Crosse, uh, 85% of them had advanced directives back in 95. Um, and the advanced directive was found on the record 95% of the time, and 98% of the time the treatment decisions were consistent with those instructions. And they looked at, could this sustain because they kept the quality improvement going. And in fact, yes, it did sustain. 90% had advanced directives uh, 10 years later. 99% of the time it was in the record. And uh, almost 100% of the time, treatment decisions were consistent with the instructions. And as you, and as you heard me say now, that now they, they claim that 96% of people have advanced directives. So, two-thirds of them had a Pulse document that had been created an average of four and a half months before the person had died, not like three days before they died. And most of the times, the forms were in the record, and, uh, and I think 99% of them had, I wrote 96, but 99% of them had either an advanced directive or a PULSE form at the time of death. So they, could, they did it. They did it in that community, competing hospitals. They got together and agreed to do it. So. Let me talk about these design elements a little bit more. So the discouraging news about advanced directives is that most people don't complete them or they're not readily available or even if completed, many physicians don't know that they're, they're there uh, or the, the language that they request or they write down may be too vague to be applicable to a clinical circumstance. I don't want aggressive treatment. What is aggressive treatment? What's an aggressive antibiotic? Amoxicillin is a calm antibiotic. <laughs> so, so, so what is it, uh, And what does that mean? What does it mean to you? Um, they're often invoked too late in the dying process. And there's no system to ensure that their wishes are discussed with families and providers in, in advance, or the quality of those. And sometimes, despite being available, they're overridden, so that's discouraging. But in fact, in La Crosse, the evidence is that people want to talk about it. They're receptive to talking about it. Most people have it. They're often followed. It does reduce readmissions, and unfortunately, the, the show that was on NPR uh, a few weeks ago was on Money Matters. It was about how the cost of care was less in La Crosse, Wisconsin. They don't want to talk about that because it was just that issue that led to the death panel, this, this, uh, uh, Discussion a few years ago during the early uh, a, uh, discussion around the Affordable Care Act, there was going to be a provision to actually pay people to have these conversations, uh, but that was um, that, that that died. So, um, yeah. So uh, they, it is in fact, in in general, when people make informed decisions based on their goals and values and the understanding of their condition, appreciating their condition, um, they sometimes choose things uh, that, are, that are more aggressive. And, but on average, they tend to be more conservative and things do, are, tend to be less expensive. So once again, the, res- the design elements uh, this is starting to come to New Hampshire. We have a POLST form, and Vermont has a colst form. In fact, the Vermont form is legislated, uh, and it's, it's a very nice form, but I don't know that there's been education or quality improvement. Um, there certainly hasn't been in New Hampshire. Uh, and we have begun training uh, in the pulsed conversation, uh, some of you, many of you may already know that a decade ago, the folks from Respecting Choices came to New Hampshire, uh, brought by the Foundation for Community, Healthy Communities, and they, they trained close to 700 people in the First Steps conversation. There was a two-day workshop that they held around the state, and um, but even with that training, we still, uh, actually, I understand that this year, uh, in the random survey they did in March, 38% of People in the hospital had advanced directives. Um, But despite the training, uh, nothing nothing really made the penetration like we'd like it to see. So, um, training is coming. um, And and Dartmouth Hitchcock has committed to improving the way we do it. And I'll tell you a little bit about that at the end. Um, And part of that is committing to a quality improvement process. So here's a workflow, a sample workflow. A patient is admitted to a nursing home. Uh, would I be surprised if this person would die in the next 12 months? No. So, yeah, yes, I would be surprised. So they don't need a pulse. But yes, no, I wouldn't be surprised. So the nurse introduces the pulse paradigm, invites a patient and proxy to meet with a the facilitator. Uh, they meet uh, the, with the patient and proxy to begin the pulse conversation, documenting questions for the physician completing the form, the physician, nurse practitioner, reviews the form, or continues the conversation, uh, signs the form, uh, which becomes uh, available in the health information record, and now available. Uh, you, this is just a sample. You, you need a workflow, though, because if it doesn't work, you need to study it. Um, with advanced care planning, what they've done in La Crosse is that if, if it fails to happen, if they fail to initiate the conversation, or if the conversation isn't good, or if it's not available, or if it's not honored, it's as important an occurrence as a med error. Because unless you take that attitude and investigate and try to solve it, um, it's it's not gonna improve. And then, as we heard earlier, uh, oftentimes what we're obligated to do is to ask if people have an advanced directive. So we often say, well, I need to fill out this form. Do you want CPR? Sure, why not, you know, why not? But in fact, we know that's not the way to have informed decisions. So the process that they describe in their training is one they call understanding, reflection, and discussion. What do you understand about your condition? Identifying the gaps. I like the way, Bob, you talk about appreciation. Um, So understanding, making sure that people appreciate their, uh, their condition. Reflection, what have been your experiences in the past with, with your condition, with hospitalization, with someone um, going through, uh, through the dying process? And what did you learn from that experience? And discussion, what matters most to you? What, what experience is important for you to have? If you had a short time to live, if you knew you only had a year to live, what would be on your bucket list? What do you want to do? What fears do you have about your condition, about your choices? And do you have any uh, religious uh, beliefs that that guide you in your decision making? So process of understanding, reflection, discussion. So facilitating process, assessing the decision making capacity which sounds like, if done well, is actually the shared decision-making. Offer, inviting people to the conversation. Um, oh, I'd like to invite you to talk about this. Invite the, the healthcare proxy to be there. Introducing the concept of the advanced care planning and the qualifications of the appropriate healthcare process, proxy. You could do that with the proxy there with a person who has the capacity to make decisions. You say, do you understand about your role as uh, the the healthcare proxy? What do you understand about that role? And then clarifying that the role is to uh, have the conversation with the person they're supposed to speak on their behalf when that person is unable to speak on their behalf and willing and able to speak up when that person can't and, and respect their wishes even if they don't agree. Explore the understanding of the condition, fill in the gaps. Reflect on lessons learned from the past, discussing goals, values, fears, and concerns. And you can do that in general about advanced care planning, but specifically about cardiopulmonary resuscitation, or mechanical ventilation, or tube feeds, or IVs. Discuss the benefits and burdens of choices in light of information and goals and values. And develop a follow-up plan. It's not a short conversation. Many people who are trained in this understand or appreciate that it could take an hour or more to have this conversation. And it may not be done at the end of that hour. Physicians often don't have the time or take the time to have this. And so if we're going to develop a system that works, we want to develop a training that we can trust so that we know that the conversation's been done well. And that you quality assure on so that you know it continues to be done well. So of course, the ben- treatment's a benefit if it, if, that, you know, if it helps you live as long as possible and restores function, uh, symptoms, Uh, relieves your symptoms, it promotes your goals and values, consistent with your beliefs. But it may be considered burdensome if it doesn't help you live as long as possible and then in addition results in more intolerable pain, damages body image or function, is harmful to you psychologically, it's unacceptably costly, or it's inconsistent with your goals and values. Does it help you, does taking this medicine, does doing this test, does having this treatment help you achieve what you want to do? what matters most to people. So, a quality improvement plan would be to pick something simple. What are you trying to accomplish? So, at the nursing home where I was, we wanted to see how many pulse could we generate in the facility, and then could we make it available to transfer, and does it actually come back? So those are the things we were measuring. So you plan the implementation. Who's on the team? What are the roles? Who is the target population? What's the communication plan? What's the workflow? What are the outcomes? What's the time frame? And then you do it, and then you study it. It's, it's your basic quality improvement. Whether you use the DMAIC model, define, measure, analyze, improve, control, or PDSA, or whatever, lean. Committing to a disciplined approach will help us achieve improvement. So yes, I already said we're replicating this in New Hampshire. We have forms. we need to look at our policies. Uh, We would like to, I have agreed to work with um, a couple of geriatricians in the upper valley to uh, uh, Dr. Dan Stadler and Dr. Margaret Krasnoff to improve and introduce the pulse paradigm um, at the Hanover Terrace. Um, We're gonna assemble a team and make sure that their, their, their uh, policies are, reflect this. They develop a workflow. Um, we're going to train people in the conversation, um, develop educational materials, and then study some math. They'll pick the target population and improve on. So of course, um, in uh, dementia, uh, advanced care planning has a special role. And in fact, um, in this month's uh, issue of Health Affairs, there were a number of articles uh, addressing uh, this. Advanced advanced directives and nursing home stays associated with less aggressive end of life care for patients with severe dementia. So uh, it turns out in that study they looked at people who were in nursing homes were less likely to have aggressive care, and people who were not in nursing homes uh, who uh, had dementia, were more likely to have it unless they had advanced directives. Or the type of uh, attending position influenced feeding tube insertions. So uh, even though we know that uh, feeding tubes are not helpful, in fact they're harmful, um, many people get feeding tubes. And they, they studied, uh, the, physician, the attending physician had some influence on that. It turns out people who had multiple specialists involved in the care versus just a hospitalist were more likely to have feeding tubes. But the, the, th- the reason I'm pointing out these articles is that all of the articles in their last paragraph and conclusion, they all said it underscores the importance of advanced care planning in dementia. So the common thing in this was the importance of planning for something that you know is gonna happen. So there are predictable things that happen. Doesn't happen to everybody, but in the end, cardiopulmonary arrest does happen. There's a cognitive decline. There are feeding problems, behavioral issues, risk of delirium, risk of pneumonia, falls. These are all predictable. And the importance of an early diagnosis of dementia, of education. The Alzheimer's Association, the Center for Health and Aging, have resources that help families understand what to expect. So you have this, you, you know what's going to happen, and it's denial to not plan. Oh, to plan for what you know is going to happen. So what do you understand about CPR? Well, first, would, would it be okay if we talked about it? And then, uh, what do you understand? Will people understand what they see on TV? On TV, 70% of people survive CPR. But in fact, fewer than one in five patients for whom CPR is attempted will leave the hospital alive after an average hospital of two weeks. And then over 30% of those will go to nursing facilities. But in fact, for people who are in long-term care facilities, less than 3% survive the CPR attempt. It requires transfer to the ICU, mechanical ventilation, their broken ribs. There may result in decline in mental function. So there are educational materials that can be provided. Now this is just CPR in general. This is not for patients with dementia. This is just people who are uh, in the hospital or uh, in a nursing home. And actually for people who are in hospital, there was a study that uh, documented the percentage of patients surviving with good neurological function or minimal deficits. And they sliced it and diced it in a number of ways. Here's one of the slices that showed that the older you were, the less likely you were that you were going to have survive with good neurological function. So even those who survive may not be the same. So it's, uh, it looks like at best uh, 12% uh, and at worst uh, 4%. So what do you understand about feeding tubes and hydration? Feeding tubes work if you're healthy and need short-term supplements to recover from surgery or sudden illness. But they're in the the setting of CU dimension, they don't improve nutrition or prevent aspiration pneumonia or prolong life, nor do they aid in the healing of pressure sores. In fact, there's evidence that more pressure sores develop. And they may deny the pleasure of oral feeds and socialization and may contribute to increased discomfort and suffering. And it may be one of those futile things that we don't even need to offer. But at this time, we tend to bring that in and inform decision making. So what do you understand about feeding tubes? We, are, we, can, provide, we can fill in the gaps. What do you understand about medical, mechanical ventilation? And when I say what do you understand, it's what, what have your experiences been? Have you had a loved one have this? And what are your fears about that? So, Mechanical ventilation works best if your lung problem can be fixed and used for a short time to get better after surgery or sudden illness. It does not work well if your body is shutting down from long-lasting health problems. So, you know, people say, Doc, will I be able to play the violin after, I, uh, after this operation? I say, of course you can. Well, it's great, I never could play the violin before. So it's not like the operation or mechanical ventilation is gonna make you better than you were. You're starting off where you were and you're not gonna be as good as you were before. And after 48 hours of mechanical ventilation, there's an over 50% mortality at one year. Of course, that mortality goes up the older you are, especially after one week of mechanical ventilation. There's a higher mortality if there's a pre-hospital functional status with at least one uh, problem with uh, instrumental activities of daily living. And most survivors require caregiver assistance at one year. What do you understand about the acute transfer to a hospital in a setting of advanced dementia? Of course, acute intensive care can be provided in a hospital setting, not at home or in long-term care. Transfer to a hospital often results in functional decline without improvement after discharge. And medical interventions in a hospital can be associated with confusion, anorexia, incontinence and falls, and the immediate survival after it may be similar to treating pneumonia in long-term care or in a hospital. What do you understand about the use of antibiotics in the setting of advanced dementia? Of course, we use antibiotics to treat infections like pneumonia or urinary infection. But it may be futile in the face of recurrent aspiration. It may cause undue burden, exposing the person who has progressive decline to ongoing progressive decline. So we keep them alive to experience further decline. It may cause discomfort if IV is used and restraint is required. And may not actually aid in the long-term survival or symptom control. So, advanced care planning, the benefits. Improvements in physical symptoms of depression. Patients believe that doctors understand their preferences and care more to better preparation for death. Lessening of the burden on loved ones. Regardless of the decisions that people make to do something or not to do something on behalf of their loved one when they're making decisions on their behalf. Uh, if, they don't, if they didn't have conversations beforehand and don't know how they feel, they question themselves. They suffer. Making the decisions, having had the conversation, um, regardless of their, uh, of their choice, if they've had the discussion and they make the decision, they don't suffer the way, at least a third of people who make decisions without knowing how the person feels, experience distress for many months afterwards. And establishes the basis for ongoing uh, communication. So, um, I hope that I achieve these objectives. uh, Differentiating between advanced care planning, advanced directives, let you know that the POLST is coming, the COLST is here. Uh, that uh, quality improvement, uh, a form, uh, facilitated conversations that are standardized, uh, and that quality improvement is important to that, and that has special importance for advanced care planning with patients with dementia and their families. I just want to share with you, this is the vision that we've created for improving advanced care planning here at Dartmouth-Hitchcock, and which we hope to spread around all of the community practices around New Hampshire. So with our patients, their loved ones, and our communities, we will build a system to support meaningful conversations about what matters most in life for a time when patients are unable to speak for themselves. That's our vision. And we'll realize that by developing stronger relationships and communication with our patients, their loved ones, and our communities. By facilitating meaningful conversations about what matters most in life to patients and their loved ones. By helping patients to make informed decisions about their future health care based on their goal, own goals and values. By assisting patients in the developing of clear plans for a care for a time when they are unable to speak for themselves, including end of life. By building a system for maintaining, retrieving, and following our patients' advanced care plans in order to honor their choices. And by continuously improving the process of advanced care planning. To reflect the changing environment of health and healthcare experienced by our patients and our communities. So, thank you for listening. I'm happy to uh, take questions now or during break. So, yes. She's coming with the microphone.
0: Given the proximity of Dartmouth Hitchcock Medical Center to Vermont, what um, position is the facility taking when you provide treatment for Vermont residents? Like, which form is being used, the Pulse or the Colst, and, and vice versa? I mean,
1: you know. I believe, so first of all, Dartmouth Hitchcock policy needs to be updated to uh, address the Pulse. But in general, advanced care plans that are executed uh, in another state will be honored. So the Colst, if it's if it's executed in Vermont, would, would be should be honored. I don't think people really understand, uh, and fully understand uh, its role, but uh, it should be honored. And we actually have a practice in Vermont, and we will be working with them. And I was always contacted by somebody at the University of Vermont uh, who wants to uh, participate in this improvement as well. So. Okay. Can people? people can approach me all day so thank you
0: (laughs) so he'll be here all day Um, so lunch is down this hallway heading into the hotel there should be staff there to help you